You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. David Heffernan from Queen's University Belfast. His paper was entitled the Goldsmiths' Company of London and the Plantation of Londonderry under James I. Okay, so in the late spring of 1609, the government of James I, led by Robert Cecil, the first Earl of Salisbury, began courting the mercantile community of the city of London to undertake a role in the incipient Ulster plantation. The scheme devised by James's government was for the city to be granted the majority of the county of Coleraine in the north of the province, along with the barony of Lochie and Sholan in the north of Tyrone. This region benefited from ample natural resources and, more importantly, numerous natural harbours and ports. Consequently, two settlements had emerged there prior to the plantation at Derry and Coleraine. The city companies were initially reluctant to undertake the plantation, in the, re- the plantation of the region. However, after a deputation sent by them to Ulster in the late summer of 1609 reported positively on the feasibility of planting the region, they agreed to do so. Uh, formal articles of plantation were signed between the city and the Crown in January 1610. Accordingly, the county of Coleraine and the barony of Locking Sholan were joined together into the newly created county of Londonderry, in which the city companies were given a primary stake, with some lands apportioned to the Church of Ireland and local servitors such as Thomas Phillips and Captain Edward Doddington. In return for these lands, the city covenanted to quickly develop the towns of Coleraine and Derry into walled settlements, each replete with several hundred housing housing units. So these, in brief, are the well-known circumstances whereby the City of London became involved in planting one of the six escheated counties involved in the Ulster Plantation. The The involvement of the goldsmiths, with which this paper is to be concerned, is perhaps more complex and less well understood. The involvement of the companies is intrinsically connected with the financing of the Londonderry plantation. The initial agreement between the Crown and the City envisaged that £20,000 would be needed to develop the towns of Derry and Coleraine and meet the City's other obligations. To raise this, subscriptions were sought from the City livery companies. These monetary demands generally met with stiff resistance from a mercantile community that was unenthusiastic about the potential fiscal returns from investing in Ireland. It was even more difficult to collect two further instalments of £20,000 in the summer of 1611 and a third again of £20,000 in 1613 as costs spiralled. Thus, to sweeten the deal, the Irish Society, which had been established in London and charged with oversight of the London Dairy Plantation, offered to grant estates to the companies in return for their contributions towards the £60,000 eventually raised. In total, some 55 companies invested in the plantation. However, for the purposes of organisation, it was determined that the 12 major livery companies of the city 
would be granted these estates with the other 43 companies acting as sub-companies. Thus, to the mercers, merchant tailors, soldiers, skinners, fishmongers, vintners, haberdashers, clothes workers, drapers, grocers, ironmongers and the goldsmiths' companies were allotted 12 estates in the county of Londonderry. The estates were eventually divided and allotted to the 12 companies in December 1613, over three years after the initiation of the plantation. This was done by lot. The goldsmiths were assigned lot number one in in association with the three sub-companies, the cordwainers, the painter stainers and the armourers in December 1613. Um, So, I mean, the goldsmiths had the vast majority of it. They contributed most of the £4,400 that was involved in this particular lot, whereas if you take the other three companies, they um, generally invested somewhere. Two of them invested about £60. So you can see the percentage in terms of their actual stake. Okay. So here's just a map in terms of um, the actual allotment of estates. So you can see that right over here on the left is where the goldsmiths were given their lands just south of Derry. So comprising some 11,000 acres, <clears throat> it lay in the, uh, the goldsmiths' estate lay in the barony of Tyrkiran on the south side of the River Foyle opposite the town of Derry. And indeed later the town would actually expand onto the lands of the goldsmiths. This was good farming land which also benefited from the proximity of the lands to Derry which gave greater security to the proportion and commercial benefits, obviously, in terms of the access to the port. So we were able to gain a unique insight into the goldsmiths and their endeavours in Londonderry during the first decade of the plantation, owing to the survival of a highly detailed source. This is a volume which was compiled by a member of the company, Henry Carter, probably around 1619 or 1620. Uh, Little is known of Carter other than that he served as a clerk of the company in 1616. The volume he compiled is not easily classifiable. So it stretches to about 900 pages and contains a wide array of documentation, which isn't kind of homogenous. The first 100 pages or so consist of documents which concern the initial negotiations between the Irish society or the, the city companies and the Crown in 1609 and 1610. Okay, so for example, uh, the Articles of Agreement, which were signed on the 28th of January 1610. Uh, There are then 200 pages taken up with the text of the Latin Charter of Incorporation of Londonderry. Following this, the volume becomes more concerned with the goldsmiths exclusively and is suffused with correspondence between the company's agents and other prominent individuals on the ground in Londonderry and the company in London from 1613 through to 1619. However, even these sections are not unambiguously what might be termed a letter book, as the letters are interspersed with reports and other documents, some of which do not exclusively concern the goldsmiths, but refer to the Londoners' involvement in Ulster as a whole. Uh, We are wholly fortunate that Carter included these documents along with um, the actual correspondence of the goldsmiths, because amongst them are some of the most important surveys of Londonderry, which were actually undertaken in the 1610s. Okay, so the first is the mission comprised of George Smith, 
and Matthias Springham, sent by the Irish Society to investigate the progress of the Londonderry Plantation in 1613. The second is the only surviving fragment of a survey which Josias Bodley undertook of the whole of the Ulster Plantation in 1614. So, the 1613 survey is relatively well known, but the 1614 generally isn't uh, referred to that often. The third are the records of a further mission sent by the Londoners to Ulster in 1616 and compro- comprised of Peter Proby and once again Matthias Springham. It is perhaps somewhat strange that Carter's volume has been such a neglected source given its significance. T.W. Moody relied heavily on it for the London Dairy Plantation, published in 1939. However, since then, it has rarely featured in works on the early history of the Ulster Plantation. Yet this is, not, this is perhaps not as strange an oversight, as it appears given, as it appears given the, the actual location of the volume. The volume is in Goldsmiths Hall. That's the outside. That's the inside. It's fierce fancy. I don't know if they knew what to make of me. Um, so this is unusual, as most of the livery, livery company's records, the fact that it's in Goldsmiths Hall is quite unusual, because most of their records pertaining to Londonderry have found their way to other major repositories. Okay. So many were initially loaned to the Guildhall Library in the aftermath of the Second World War, as many of the livery companies' halls had been bombed during the Blitz in 1941 and a lot of records had been destroyed. The loan of these materials generally became permanent um, and are known still in the Guildhall, but what's a constituent part of London Metropolitan Archives. However, there was a dispute between the goldsmiths and the Guildhall Library and they requested their material back at some point. Some of it made it back. Some of it stayed in the Guildhall. So, as such, um, Carter's volume went back to the goldsmiths' hall and as such, it's, it's housed in a relatively obscure archive, which um, not a lot of historians have possibly consulted. Uh, when it is consulted, Carter's volume provides a detailed window, window into the development of the estate up to 1619, only a brief sketch of which can be provided today. When assessing the development of the estate, it is key, key to bear in mind the theory which underpinned the Ulster Plantation, as in judging the relative success of any of the companies, what was central is that that they adhered to their obligations so that what was conceived as an act of social and demographic engineering could be successful. So in this respect, the key tenets guiding the companies were those adumbrated uh, in documents such as the Orders and Conditions, so published in London in 1609, also in Edinburgh, uh, the unpublished project for plantation of 1610, and for the Londoners, the Articles of, of Agreement, which was up on the, uh, the, the slide. This is just kind of a summary of some of the major kind of stipulations around what people were theoretically meant to do if they were granted estates in, in Ulster. Okay, so in brief, these stated that the holders of estates would build a castle in Bone or surrounding fortification on their estate, and would settle a certain number of British settlers on their lands, to whom they would grant freeholds and other estates, and who they would enjoin to live in nucleated villages of British-style housing. They were also expressly commanded to remove the Irish from their lands and foster religious and cultural norms by, for instance, taking the oath of supremacy, speaking English generally, 
and engaging in a sort of agricultural and commercial work which was deemed the norm of England and lowland Scotland, or what James I would have termed inland Scotland. So how well did the goldsmiths succeed in doing all this between the granting of their estate in December 1613 through the determination of James's reign just over a decade later in 1625? Like other companies, following the granting of the estates to them in December 1613, the goldsmiths immediately took action to begin developing their lands. So within weeks, they had appointed two individuals, um, Andrew Bowdler and Robert Glynn, to act as their agents in London Derry and dispatch them with instructions to begin developing the estate. So this is from Carter's volume. It's just the, uh, the title, obviously, of their instructions. It runs for several pages. So even at this very early date, the company were also entertaining offers to farm out their entire estate to an individual or groups of individuals, a course which 11 of the 12 companies would eventually opt for. Offers were being entertained in early 1614 from Robert Calvert, um, significantly a brother of the future Baron of Baltimore and founder of the Maryland Colony, as well as uh, a minor servitor grantee in Armagh, Marmaduke Whitechurch, and the clerk of Derry, Robert Goodwin, who's, I suspect, probably one of the most important individuals in the entire early history of the London Derry Plantation, but somebody who's been relatively muted in the historiography. While such offers were being entertained, Bowdler and Glenn had quickly made progress in Londonderry, organising building material, taking a survey of the entire state, and attempting to settle British tenants thereon. They were at something of an advantage as there were already five houses inhabited by British settlers on their estate. Yet Bowdler and Glenn were endeavouring to improve these dwellings and construct others, while they had also laid out ground for the construction of a mill and a tenant was being sought who might endeavour to build the same on favourable terms. This was a relatively positive start, one which was mirrored in the behaviour of the other livery companies in developing their own estates in 1614. It is then somewhat unusual that the companies came in for considerable criticism later in the year, when Josias Bodley conducted a survey of the entire Ulster plantation. So, as I've mentioned Bodley had undertaken a similar survey in 1613, the results of which are known to us. However, his only report, uh, only his report on Londonderry has survived for the 1614 survey. So this is in, as I've mentioned, Carter's letter book at Goldsmith's Hall. As you can probably see from the comparison of the two, the, um, the volume is all pretty much in the same neat hand, so it's obviously it's not an original, but it is the only surviving fragment. The great majority of Bodley's reports is concerned with the development of the towns of Derry and Coleraine and the fort at Coolmore outside Derry. However, he did give brief consideration to the county lands and the estates of the 12 companies. Here he noted of the 12 companies' estates that, so to quote, it's rather extensive, there is nothing in that purpose effective, affected save that divers their agents but meanly qualified to undergo that charge were employed over by them this last summer with instructions to build some certain number of tenements where they could best choose on their lands, thereby to improve the same to their best advantage. And of that kind, the Salters only can show some beginnings. So Bodley's 
criticisms here presage two decades of what on balance must be considered unfair criticisms of the Londoners and their efforts in, Lo- in Ulster. So the companies had only been granted their estates in December 1613 and since then had made some significant initial efforts to begin developing those lands. Any sluggishness in doing so was in any event matched and often considerably superseded uh, by the undertakers in the other five counties who would not face anywhere near the same level of criticism in the years to come as the Londoners did. Bodley would have been more than aware of these things. So... There's a curious bias here, and one which suffuses most of the official statements on the Londonderry plantation throughout the early Stuart period. So, just as Bodley was surveying the plantation, efforts to farm the estate were advancing for the goldsmiths in London. At some stage, late in 1614, an offer was made by one John Freeman of Essex to take the proportion. An agreement was consequently signed on 28 January 1615, by this, Freeman covenanted to farm the whole proportion for £106 rent annually. He was also bound to build a castle in Bowen on the estate and erect 12 stone houses. This does not mean the goldsmith simply farmed the responsibility for the proportion out and thereafter paid little attention to it other than receiving rents. The goldsmiths, like all the other companies that farmed their estates, continued to discuss their Irish property regularly at the court meetings of their company in London. Thus, in the voluminous court minutes for the companies of the Guildhall Library are to to be found regular entries, usually every few weeks, concerning Irish business. These show active involvement in the development of their Londonderry lands and suggest that rather than farmers of the estate, the individuals like Freeman, who took hold of them, should be viewed more as chief tenants rather than than farmers, I'd argue. There certainly was robust and continuous involvement by the companies from London, For instance, in late 1615, several months after he had taken effective control of the proportion, the company wrote to Freeman from London to rebuke him for not creating freeholds quickly enough on the estate. They were still receiving information from Ulster, deliberating on it, and sending directives to the farmer Freeman, who in this instance clearly was not free to do whatever he wished, so long as the rents were, were paid on time. So Freeman's problems were not limited to rebukes about his failure to create a satisfactory amount of freeholds. The company was shortly to discover, to its dismay, that Freeman was not financially solvent enough to invest the money needed to build the castle and bone and the required amount of housing. Thus, by September 1616, he had completed just two of the 12 houses that he was covenanted to build, while a third had been constructed but was without a roof, and the other... Half of the walls were built. Accordingly, in 1616, Freeman travelled to London and appeared at a court meeting of the company, at which he successfully negotiated that he would build just six houses instead of twelve. Accordingly, he was able to complete these by the summer of 1617. Freeman had also succeeded in roofing and slating the parish church at Clondermot by then, thus ensuring that he was seen to the religious needs of the estate. However, on the bone and castle which he was required to create it, as the centrepiece of the expanding village, so typically referred to as Goldsmiths Hall after Goldsmiths Hall in London, Freeman was making slow progress. Freeman and Goldsmiths, however, do appear to have been making steady progress towards meeting their requirement to settle British settlers on the estate at this time. 
1616, a muster of the provinces of Ulster and Leinster was taken by George Allen. Okay, so for the goldsmith's lands, Allen recorded that 49 British adult males appeared there. However, their ability to defend themselves, another envisaged aim of the plantation throughout Ulster, would have been limited by a relative lack of arms, and there was just four muskets, two calivers, three pikes, and 13 swords to be found there, meaning that just under half of the, of the mustered men could have armed themselves in the event of violent unrest in London Derry, such as had been threatened a few years earlier in 1615. In late 1618, yet another survey of the Ulster Plantation was ordered by the Crown, seeking to understand how the undertakers and companies throughout Ulster were progressing towards fulfilling the theory on which the plantation had been established. The charge of this fell to Nicholas Penner, who toured Ulster in the late winter and early spring of 1618 and 1619, which is unusual in its own self. Generally, the surveys were undertaken during the summer. Um, of the goldsmith's estate he reported that Freedom or Freeman with the aid of a £300 loan from the goldsmith's company in London had finally built a a bone at goldsmith's hall measuring 100 feet square 16 feet high and with four flankers so kind of turrets as it were pretty much on the corners so with the bone uh, a stone castle or within the bone a stone castle was also under construction up to the second storey On the estate, he identified six stone houses and six timber houses. The stone houses would seem to be the six houses Freeman had erected in the burgeoning village of Goldsmiths Hall, with the rest possibly scattered throughout the estate and largely made up of the dwellings which had pre-existed the involvement of the Goldsmiths in the region. Pinner found that Freeman had estated six British freeholders and 24 British leaseholders. Okay, so there's an obvious mismatch here between the number of tenanted settlers and the number of houses. So the obvious, well, not the obvious, but presumably the only two explanations are either that some of them were living on tempor- in temporary dwellings, which Penner did not uh, factor into his survey, or else they were absentee landholders that were living elsewhere, either in Londonderry or somewhere else in Ulster. Okay, so these 30 families and their undertenants were able to make 90 armed men and taken the oath of supremacy. All in all, this indicates that despite his financial difficulties and other impediments, Freeman and the Goldsmiths Company were making considerable progress in the mid to late 1610s in developing their colony and meeting the plantation requirements. So Henry Carter's volume of records pertaining to the Goldsmiths land in London Derry terminates in January 1619. As such, the best window into the state of the goldsmiths' lands towards the end of the reign of James I is provided in a survey of the Ulster Plantation made in 1622 as part of the wide-ranging Commission for Irish Affairs. So Richard Hadzer and Thomas Phillips were charged with surveying the plantation lands in Donegal and London Derry. They described the village of Goldsmiths Hall as lying some two miles from Derry. Freeman appears to have changed course since Pinner's visit three years previously, and elected to build his castle or manor house outside, outside of the bawn for some strange reason. Yet it was reported that it was finished, thus meeting one of the key obligations of both Freeman and the company. The village had expanded to include the six stone houses Freeman had erected a year before, and a further seven houses, albeit of timber construction. 
The windmill for which ground had been laid out some time before had been completed. They also reaffirmed Pinner's reports of other houses scattered throughout the estate. So in terms of the settlement and demographic makeup of the proportion, the goldsmiths had made some considerable progress by the end of James I's reign. Pursuant from the 1622 investigation, uh, inquisitions were taken throughout Londonderry between 28 February and 6 March 1624 to establish what proportion of the county lands were held by British settlers and what proportion were still inhabited by the Irish. These found that roughly 40% of those living on the goldsmiths' estate were Irish. So, in terms of meeting the obligation to remove the Irish from their lands, this figure accords quite favourably with other companies. For instance, the Salters had a mix of about 80% Irish and 20% English living on their estate. Uh, others, such as Sir Robert McClelland, who held both the haberdashers and cloth workers' proportions, where the percentage of the population was made up by the Irish was 24% and 16%, uh, had performed significantly better than the goldsmiths in this respect. The key here, as with so much else of the plantation, was geography. McClelland's lands in the northeast of the county and in proximity to Coleraine were a natural entry point for settlers from Scotland. Equally, the goldsmiths, with their lands south of Derry, stood a far greater chance of, att- of attracting British settlers than the Salters, whose lands were in the remote southern reaches of the county, in the heavily wooded and less fertile barony of Lochine Shoal. However, despite the fact that some of the co- livery companies were performing quite well in terms of this plantation goal, and in many cases much better than a great number of the English and Scottish undertakers in the other five planted counties in the closing years of James's reign, they continued to face a disproportionately large amount of criticism from observers both in Ireland and in England. Okay, so to conclude. Uh, in the years ahead, the goldsmith's estate entered a period of stagnation. Much of this was owing to the limbo in which the city companies found themselves from the very inception of the reign of Charles I. In 1625, the Londoner's inveterate opponent, Thomas Phillips of Limavady, presented documentation to the government in London which led to the the Crown to sequester the city's rents from their properties in Londonderry. Thus began a decade of prosecution of the city by Charles's government, which would eventually culminate in the infamous trial in Star Chamber in 1635, the imposition of huge fines on the city for allegedly neglecting their Irish estates and failing to meet the obligations they had to develop those lands, and finally the confiscation of their lands by Charles I. As these events proceeded, the the goldsmith's estate, slow though the development had been under James I, stagnated. No better indication of this this is there than this muster of the province, which was taken by Richard Graham almost certainly in 1630. Rather than improving, British settlement on the estate was declining. Just 42 British adult males were mustered, and the cache of weapons available to them remained the same, as in the early muster of 1618 and at the time of the 1622 commission. Yet despite the ruptures caused by the events of the 1640s and other major upheavals in Ulster, the settlement, which the goldsmiths and freemen established on their proportion, would endure in the long run. So today what was Goldsmiths Hall is the town of Newtown Buildings. As such, the goldsmiths' experience of plantation in Ulster in the early 17th century is broadly representative of the plantation as a whole. 
as an act of demographic, social and cultural engineering. It could be deemed to have been a failure by the standards of the planners in London, since the goldsmiths failed to achieve the goals set by the theory of plantation. However, in attempting to put that theory into plantation in the long run, the landscape of Ulster was enduringly transformed. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.